We're going to start in Revelation this morning, six times in the last book of the Bible, which is all about the return of Jesus and the end of this age and uh, the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth. Six times Jesus says, I am returning quickly or I am returning soon. The New Testament is full of promises that Jesus will be right back 2,000 years ago. So is he fudging on that? Is he exaggerating? Does he expect us to just uh, believe that that really is something, 2,000 years is something short to him? Well, in Psalm 90, God says, a thousand years to me is like yesterday. Because somehow God does not live in time like we do. So from his eternal perspective, a thousand years just flies right by. So Jesus is not lying or fudging or exaggerating anything when he says, I am coming quickly, and then it's been 2,000 years. In God's sense of time, he doesn't feel time pass like we do because he lives outside of that in eternity. It really has been just a couple days. Jesus' return is Christianity 101. This is freshman, first semester Bible college stuff. You would take a New Testament class and you would learn the gospel story of sin and man's fall and our damnation and our need for rescue, for salvation, for redemption. Jesus, God becomes a man in the flesh. Jesus lives, teaches us who God is, reveals God to us, and we kill him for it. He rises from the grave and he ascends into heaven and his promise is that I will return. And the angel said in Acts 1, he will return just as he left. He will return as a physical man and he will take over the world as king of kings from the throne of his father David in Jerusalem and he will rule and sin will be done. Suffering will be done. He will establish God's righteousness and truth and justice. His people's sin will be forgiven Suffering will be over and eternity begins. It's Christianity 101. It's the return of Jesus. And he said six times in Revelation, I'll be right back. And then he wasn't. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do with that? Why, what is God waiting for? Why does God tolerate everything that's going on in the last 2,000 years? Why does he put up with all the evil and the wickedness, the suffering, the blasphemy, of humans toward him why and our terrible mistreatment of each other the immorality the agony that is human existence the inexpressibly evil things what is God waiting for why doesn't he just snap his finger and return Jesus said I don't even know when that's going to happen only my father and he promised that the moment God gives him permission he will be back as quick as lightning what is God holding him back for? In light of all the world's hatred for God and the rejection of Christ and the wretchedness and destitution of our experience, the poverty, the pain, the abominations, the cursing, the soul-crushing anguish that people live in, the appalling abuses that happen, the refusal to repent and obey, the arrogance of the wealthy and the greediness of the poor, the selfishness of those who are in authority and the rebellion of those under their authority. Lust and pride and excuses and tears. He could speak one word and it would all be over as quick as lightning. What is he waiting for? There are lots of people who want to blame God and say, well, if there's a God, why is he allowing all the tragedy and suffering and pain and sins of 
the world, and so there must not be a God. They've got it exactly backward. He is our Savior from all those things. We are doing all that. He is the Savior from that. That is our faith. But there still remains the question, why is he tolerating it? if, if, If we're doing it and he could stop it, what's he waiting for? That's the question I want to ask this morning, and we're going to look in the Bible to find the answer. What is God waiting on for the return of Jesus? The number one scriptural picture of what God is waiting for is he is waiting for the grain to ripen. Let's look at James 5. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It says, be patient, Jesus will return. Like a farmer waits for his crops to ripen in the summer. Next passage from Mark 4, this is Jesus speaking. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain in the head. And when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God is like a farmer waiting for his crops to get ripe. Compares God waiting for the fullness of time, God waiting for the end of the world, if you want to put it that way, the apocalypse, uh, is like a farmer waiting on grain to ripen. So I don't know how many of you ever leave LaGrande very often, but those of us who don't live in LaGrande, we see that the crops around the valley are ripening. All right, we're hot and heavy right in the middle of grass seed harvest right now in the north half of the valley. The grain, the barley and wheat is starting to turn. They've already started to combine wheat over at Pendleton. Uh, in fact, they may be um, right in the thick and middle of it there, but we're a, a few weeks behind. It's going to be a week or two before the combines start rolling in the wheat and the barley around here. But you'll notice that some of the grain is already quite golden. But even when you see a field of grain like wheat or barley in the valley that is, looks like, okay, that looks like it's ready to combine. That's the amber waves of grain out there. Uh, they can't just cut it just because the green is gone and Farmers have to wait to harvest until the kernels have dried out a little bit. There's moisture in there, and if they combine it and put it in a bin, it will mold. If it's not dried out to some level, the science of it all is not my point. They have to wait, and they cannot cut it early, or it will spoil. There is a day. There is math, there is science, there is biology, there is a day when they have to wait. You can't fudge that. You can't cheat it and hurry it up a little bit or you will ruin your grain. It will mold, it will rot. It's not ripe. It doesn't have its full feed value for livestock or people or you know, whatever you're growing. But, but also it will ruin itself in the grain bin. God has to wait until the perfect moment. He cannot rush it. So he is patient and he is waiting. And even though you would look around at the world situation and say, anytime now, Jesus, we're ready. It's not ready yet or he would be here. Amen? Obviously, it looks like it's ready, but it isn't ready yet. 
Jesus says, when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle. We don't farm with sickles and scythes anymore. We've got combines. But when the grain ripens, immediately he starts cutting because the harvest has come. Jesus promised us as soon as God can, he will do it. But the timeline of earth, the timeline of human history has to come to a harvest. It has to come to a ripening, a maturity, an end. And God can't rush that. It has to happen. Next passage from Matthew 13. Another parable Jesus put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. I know a bunch of you already know this, but those of you who don't, a tear is a weed that looks like wheat, but it's not wheat, and it's toxic. It's poisonous if you eat it, or cattle, or livestock, or people. It's, it's toxic. It looks just like wheat until it puts the head on, and then you can tell the difference. There's a little difference of shape and color between a tear and wheat. So Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A farmer sows good seed and his, and his enemy comes and fills his field full of toxic poison. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. And the servants of the owner came and said, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, no, lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather it together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew goes on writing another story, and then six verses later, the disciples come and say, Jesus, explain that whole uh, wheat and tares story to us. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age. What is God waiting for? He's waiting for harvest time. Okay? And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus tells the story. The disciples ask for an explanation. He says, The field is the whole world. I am the farmer. I only put good people in the world, but the devil puts poisonous, toxic people in the world. Hello? My people are good, healthy, nutritious wheat. The devil's people are toxic and poisonous. They look good on the outside. They look like the real thing, but they'll kill you. Jesus says, the servants, the angels came to God and said, do you want us to tear up those weeds? Meaning remove all the, pluck all the wicked people out of the world. And God says, no, we can't do that. Because when you go out into the field to pull up the weeds, you will smash and step on some of the good wheat and wheat and barley in the field. The roots intergrow and you can't pull out the weeds without pulling up some of the good wheat. Because grass grows its roots intertwined just like people in relationships. If God removes all the wicked people of the world, it would hurt you because you're related to some of them. You love a lot of them. Some of you are the people who would get removed. I hope not very many. But it would hurt. 
if God just removed every wicked person here and there from the world. God says, no, we're going to let both the righteous and the wicked come to full maturity, and at the very end, when it's harvest time, I will pull up the weeds, and then we'll harvest the wheat. Wickedness and righteousness have to come to full maturity, and then the end will come. The harvest is the end of the age. Apparently, it's not yet harvest time. Sure looks like things couldn't get worse, and maybe some things couldn't get better, but they will. They will. There's a ripening of humanity. There's a maturity of time that God is waiting for that has to come. Revelation 14. I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And an angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was reaped. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar and he shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream 180 miles long as high as a horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood. In this vision that John sees, there are two harvesters. Jesus harvests first, and then an angel comes and harvests. The first crop is wheat. Jesus cuts the grain and brings it into his house. It's the good, healthy stuff. The grapes, the second harvest is grapes. An angel comes and harvests the grapes. And in the ancient world, you put grapes in a big vat, and then they would go in and stomp them to crush them, and the juice would come out, and they'd make the wine out of the juice. And Revelation says, Jesus personally stomps the grapes in the wine press of the wrath of God and its people. In this vision, the grain is Jesus' people. The grapes that get stomped are the wicked people. It's going to happen. Both of those are going to happen. At the same time, when harvest season comes. Make sure you're in the right field. Hello. God is waiting for maturity. He's waiting for a fullness. He's waiting for a season. He's waiting for a harvest. Specifically, he is waiting for sin to come to complete maturity. Next scripture from Genesis 15. Abraham is old and about to die. God told him, everywhere you go in the promised land, you will inherit. But now God springs this on him when he's old. He says, Actually, you know, you've never had a home. You've just dwelled in tents as a nomad and moved around. You're grandchildren four generations from now will inherit this land but they're going to live in Egypt for four generations it's actually six from Abraham because it's Isaac and then Jacob and then four generations in Egypt but God says your descendants are going to live in Egypt for four generations and then I will bring them back here to Canaan and give them the promised land for the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete the Amorites are the people who lived in Canaan and basically what God is telling him is, it wouldn't be fair for me to give you the promised land now. But in 500 years from now, these people that live here are going to be so wicked, it will be fair and just for me to judge them and remove them. 
I can't act yet because it wouldn't be fair and just for me to bring judgment just yet. So we're going to wait a while. What is God waiting for? For sin to get worse. You look around and you're like, God, I don't know how it could get worse. It will. The wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. It will get worse. If I told you what I see, you wouldn't believe me. You would actually laugh at me. So I'm not going to tell you this morning. But in Deuteronomy 9, 500 years later, when Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandchildren are coming into the promised land, Moses is an old man now after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, and they're about to take the promised land that God promised Abraham six generations ago. Moses says this, Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. No, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because you are righteous, you are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Go Moses. All right. Moses tells them, you're not getting the promised land because you deserve it or because you're good or because you've done anything right. God is driving them out because of their wickedness, and he's giving it to you. When Jesus returns and sets up justice and truth and righteousness in the earth, it will not be because we qualified to be saved. It will be because the sin of humanity can no longer be tolerated. It will not be because we have qualified or earned anything or because we have become perfectly righteous and now he can save us. It is because the sins of humanity have reached his ears and have gotten fully complete. And he will save us because he loves us. He will do it in mercy and in forgiveness and in justice and truth, but not because we deserve it. It's because the blasphemies and rebellion of humanity can no longer stand. Amen. So he is waiting for sin to come to complete maturity. He is also waiting for his people, righteous people, to come to complete maturity and finally get a clue. He is waiting for his own special people. Titus chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 2,000 years ago, God, through Paul, tells us Jesus died for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us as his own special people. Apparently, that has not yet happened to completion. Of course, I understand that you know Jesus paid for it all at the cross, and it's done. But 2,000 years ago, God says through Paul, Jesus is purifying his people to become like God, and apparently that work is not yet done. Righteousness is not yet mature either. Sin is not yet complete, but righteousness is not yet complete either because God wants his own special people zealous for good works. To have zeal, to be zealous means you are eagerly excited about something. You are energetically enthusiastic. 
That's zeal, as the Bible uses that word. Zealous for good works. That does not mean that you are excited to be a good person. It means you are excited to live like Jesus. Yes, I can't wait to forgive another person. Yes, I can't wait to die to myself again. I can't wait to give up more. Yes, God, let's do it. Let's suffer more. It's not true. (laughs) We're not there yet, folks. It's not true yet, but it's coming. God will have his people who have his heart and his mindset, and we will be eager to lay down our lives. It's coming. It's going to be here soon. Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This passage is talking about the earth, the trees and the rocks and the animals are waiting for the sons of God, and that would of course include daughters of God also, to be revealed. Well, aren't we already sons and daughters of God? Yes, of course, we're adopted in Christ from the moment of the cross and the moment you said yes to Jesus, you are a son of God, you are a daughter of God. But the Bible says creation is waiting for the sons of God to show up on the scene. For 2,000 years, God has had his sons and daughters in the earth, but have we really shown up with his heart, with his faith, with his power, not to completion? Creation is waiting for the return of Jesus and the manifest sons of God. Next one, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's main purpose in the death of Jesus is to save each individual one of us, but not for our own individual sakes. It is so that we together become his people, that he can live with us and we can live with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. That has not yet happened to completion or else Jesus would have been back because it is God's main priority to live with us and that we live with him. He is creating his own special people. That is his priority that has not yet happened. Because those people are not just the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, but we are the bride of Christ. Check this out from Ephesians. Chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 2,000 years ago, God, through Paul, says, Jesus is preparing for himself a bride. That's the church, capital C. That's every Christian in the whole world through all of time. Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. Anywhere in the world, anywhere in history, any person who had real faith in Jesus Christ is in the bride of Christ. Amen? No gender-bending weirdness, okay? Just the church, capital C. The whole thing is the bride of Christ, all right? And Jesus is washing us that he might present her to himself a glorious church. No spot, no wrinkle, without blemish, perfectly holy. That girl does not yet exist. 
Not yet. She's about to. She is about to. That girl does not yet exist. The girl that exists now is very happy to have been rescued from the gutter and loves Jesus very much and is very thankful to have been saved from our sins. But Jesus has something so much greater in mind for her. I'm not just rescued you from the bad stuff of your past and clean you off. I'm going to qualify you to sit next to the King of Kings and be my queen. That girl doesn't exist just yet, but she's almost here. <laughs> the church is, is getting prepared. She will be without spot or wrinkle or blemish, perfectly holy when he returns. Mitch, are you saying there will be a time when the church is perfect? Yes. We will live in <laughs> such a pressure cooker that there won't be the option to sin coming next one from revelation revelation 19 i heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters as the sound of mighty thundering saying alleluia for the lord god omnipotent reigns let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready when the bride gets herself ready jesus will return for her what is god waiting on he's waiting on us to get our act together. This verse says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. John says, I heard the voice of a great multitude like waterfalls thundering. Every angel and every saint in heaven is shouting, finally, the day has come. The bride made herself ready. Jesus can come back and get her. We could, you could read that and, and, you know, they, and they were glad and they rejoice and they give him glory. No, they are shouting so loud they're shaking the doorposts of heaven. They're excited. The day has finally come. What is God waiting for? He's waiting on Jesus' girl to get her act together, to get ready. Jesus is washing her, preparing her, making her, but it's also some of us. It's our part. It, the, the church has a part. We have to make ourselves ready. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. It isn't done yet. Or Jesus would be back. He promised he would be back like lightning. Another thing God is waiting for is the gospel. He's waiting on us to preach the gospel. Matthew 24, 4-14. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences, that's diseases, and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of sorrows. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in every nation, and then the end will come. Revelation says every tongue and tribe and nation. Those words mean every ethnic group, every language group, 
and every country. The gospel will be preached. That has not yet happened. So God is waiting on us to make it happen. Most of the world has heard the gospel, but uh, there are 25% of the people in the world do not have the full Bible in their native language. Most of the nations and language groups have missionaries or groups of missionaries working with them and in them to translate the Bible into their language so that they can hear the gospel and respond with faith. There will be someone from every single ethnic and language group in heaven. I hope millions of someones, thousands of someones, but there will be a representative of every family group that God created in heaven. The gospel must circle the globe all the way back to Jerusalem, and it will. We're really close. We are very, very close to getting that done. This is not separate from the ripening of the grain. Well, there's harvest and there's the gospel. It's going to both come to fullness on the same day, the day of all days. It will be the same day, the day the gospel returns to Jerusalem and Israel gets saved, and the day of days, the day that time is up. It will be there. Jesus said the gospel has to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That hasn't happened yet, so he hasn't returned. It's one of the things God is waiting on. Another thing, clue that God gives us to what he's waiting on is in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Another thing that God is waiting on is that not enough people have died for him yet. Selah. These are the people who have been executed for their Christian faith. Their souls are under the altar in heaven. John sees them. The very closest beings to the presence of God in heaven. The the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they're outside the circle. But at the throne of God, immediately in front of him, under the altar where our prayers and the blood of Jesus are cast in front of God, under that is the souls of the people who've been executed for their Christian faith all through history. That number is not yet done. There will be more. Are you ready? The next thing that God is waiting for is just more people to have another chance. God is infinitely patient. He is loving. He is kind. He does not want anyone to be destroyed in hell. So he waits another day, hoping that someone will turn to him today. Somebody will speak up and share me with the people that live around them, that work with them, that go to school with them, the people they care about. God is waiting just to wait for more people to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 
Beloved, do not forget that the Lord, with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want one single soul destroyed in his wrath and judgment on sin. He wants everyone forgiven and to come to repentance and be saved. But there are a lot of people who insist on siding with the devil. They hate Jesus. They hate the gospel. They hate Christianity. Even though they hate God and curse him, he is waiting another day to give them another opportunity to change their mind. He is just that patient. He is that forgiving. He is that good. That he is waiting on his enemies to change sides. Continuing the passage. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. I told you about that last Sunday. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with heat. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, three times Peter says, we're looking forward to this. I'm going to guess that most people in this room are not looking forward to that. The uh, sky melting away and the earth melting away, and it's a little intimidating. It's pretty scary. I know as a kid, I was not looking forward to it. The older I get and the more sin I learn about, the more I'm ready for Jesus to just come back. Just fix this out. You know? But there's lots of people who have plans and dreams and desires, and every good Christian kid doesn't want Jesus to come back till I'm married and have had sex and had a family. Can't do that. Jesus, you need to wait. You need to wait, Jesus. Uh, wait on me. Peter says, hey, look forward to this. Hurry it up. Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Hey, those are those words again. And at peace with him, bear in mind, bear in mind that the Lord's patience is salvation. God is just waiting for more people to get saved. That's it. I, I cannot act yet because when I do, there are so many people who will be destroyed. And I do not want that. I must wait another day. He's good, folks. He's really, really good. If you have not said yes to him yet, today is your day. Say yes to him right now. Yes. Do not sit in that chair and get up and leave here the same person you came in. Say yes to Jesus. If you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. He will love you. He will receive you. But if you insist on defying him and going your own way, you will be crushed when he returns. Do not fight him. Give in to him and say yes to him now. He so wants you to be his child. He is so good and kind and merciful. He will forgive anything you've done, your darkest deeds, he will forgive. If you will just ask. If you refuse to ask, you refuse to change, the picture is pretty dark. And, is, and he's waiting to give you another chance to say yes. Lastly, I know this list could be much longer. This is just the last thing on my list today. God is waiting on us to get our priorities straight. The people who claim to be saved 
the people who claim to be the church, we haven't got our priorities straight yet. We're not sure what we want. God is waiting on Lot's wife to figure out which direction she wants to go. I said God is waiting on Lot's wife to figure out which direction she wants to go. In the story in Genesis of Lot and his wife and his two daughters being rescued, God is going to destroy Sodom with fire. He's going to rain down lava on the city. And Abraham bargains with him to save the righteous. So an angel, two angels, go into the city. They get Lot and his wife and his two daughters. They said God is going to destroy the city. It's too wicked to allow to stand. It's a picture of the end of the world and the judgment of God. We're going to pull you out, which is a picture of the rapture. We're going to pull you out. And the angels tell him, do not turn around. Only look forward. Do not look back. They pull Lot and his wife and his daughters out of the city. And they, as they run out of the city, fire is literally falling out of the sky behind them. And Lot's wife turns around and looks. And instantly she dies. The reason Jesus has not yet returned is because a lot of Christians would die in the rapture. Whether you believe the rapture happens before the tribulation or during or after doesn't matter. We are going to get caught up to meet Jesus. And there are a lot of people that when that happens, they think they know Jesus, they're living for Jesus. Yes, they know the things to say and the, things, the correct things to believe. But when the moment actually happens that I have to give up my earthly life and my possessions and the people that I care about behind me that aren't living for him, we would turn around. I'm not sure I want to leave, Jesus. God is waiting for us to get our priorities straight. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins. That just means unmarried young teenage girls. It doesn't mean it's not their sexual status. Although it does mean that because it was assumed that if you were not married, you had not been sexually active. Ten teenage girls took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the groom was delayed, they all slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So we have these ten teenage girls who are bridesmaids at a wedding. In the biblical days, the groom would propose to the girl, and then he would leave her and go make his fortune. For lack of a better term, he'd build a house and get things ready. This is what Jesus is doing. He came and he proposes a marriage, and then he leaves and says, I'll be right back to get you. Yes? 
and we are waiting for his return. And when the, when the groom was ready, then he would send word to the bride, okay, get ready, today's the day, uh, let's get married. And she would have her bridesmaids, and he would have his groomsmen, and they would literally line both sides of the road in front of the, groom, the bride's house, and the groom would come, and there would be a party and dance and music and streamers and flowers, and, and he would go into the bride's family's house, and they would get married. And that was the reception and the dance and the party and the feast and, and all of it. And Jesus has, says there are ten teenage bridesmaids who were waiting for a groom. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is not the world, folks. This parable is not about the people who aren't watching for Jesus' return. This is a parable about the people who are watching for Jesus' return. Only half of them make it. Hello? He said, there are ten girls waiting for the groom. But he was gone longer than they expected. Woohoo! Sound familiar? 2,000 years. And they fell asleep. Hello. Has the church fallen asleep? Yeah, we're not the church of Acts. Not yet. We're going to wake up. But it was, it was gone longer than they thought, and they fell asleep. Five of them had thought ahead of time, what will I need to make it all the way? The other five had just come for the party. Five of them had thought ahead, what will I need to make it all the way. The other five were just excited about the feast and the decorations. Yeah, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to have a good time. And the others are thinking, what are we going to need to make it through while we wait on him? God has not yet sent Jesus back for us because so many people who think they're waiting on Jesus aren't going to get in the door. Don't let that be you. Be one of the wise girls who is prepared for the long term. Play the long game. Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's a whole group of people who are looking forward to Jesus' return, calling him Lord. And he says, no, we have never known each other. Because you are a lawless person. So many people think, Jesus, forgive my sin, so I don't have to think about it. He says, no, if you know me, you will obey me. And their excuse is, well, God, we had some great prophecies and we cast out demons and we saw miracles and I went to the right Bible school and I went to a good church and, and I led people to the Lord and I gave some money and come on, Jesus. Like, no, we never knew each other. You never let me change your heart. There's a blogger I follow uh, who's an adult man now, but he said back in high school, his 17-year-old brother led a bunch of his classmates to the Lord in a little revival that happened in their hallway, his brother led people to the Lord without himself being saved. Here's the story. He says, my older brother were sons of a missionary, this blogger that I read, an author. He and his brother, sons of a missionary, grew up in the foreign mission field. And going to high school in America, and the guy in the locker next door, the, just the next locker over, says, I know you're a Christian. I need to know about Jesus. And this kid, 17 years old, he knows the truth, he knows the word, he knows the things to say, and he leads this guy to the Lord. 
he gets radically, supernaturally saved in the school hallway at his locker. He is so turned on and excited, he goes and brings a bunch of friends. And over the course of the next few weeks, 10 or 12 classmates get led to the Lord by this author's older brother. And he says, this will tell you how old this is. He said he got so stressed out by this, he, one day in a panic on his way home from school, he collapsed in a phone booth. That'll tell you how long this was. Go this he got into a phone booth and collapsed on the floor and said, Jesus, I don't know you. I've never surrendered my heart to you. He'd already led 10 or 12 people in revival. Because he knew the things to say. Well, the word of God is true. The name of Jesus has authority. Demons have to obey it. People get saved. And you can use it without knowing him. Don't be the person who knows the truth, who knows all the right answers, who knows the scripture verses, who's been in the exciting meetings or to the great Bible school or, or you've gotten good prophecies in the past and you've even seen some prayers answered, but you didn't let Jesus change your heart. You don't want to be in this group. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We actually have to obey. You don't have to wonder if you're in that group. You don't have to be afraid that you're in that group and don't know it. Are you actually intentionally obeying everything you know to obey? If you're making excuses for something in your life, that's lawlessness. You know the law, but you're excusing yourself from obeying it. I don't mean earthly law, I mean Jesus' law. Are you honestly, humbly, completely obeying everything you know to obey. You don't even have to know it all. The things you know, are you obeying them? Jesus said, I will not lose anyone the Father gives me. You do not have to be afraid of this. Jesus will keep you. If you're honestly seeking him out and want to do life his way and serve him and obey him, you will not get lost. Lastly, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. The reason God is waiting that he hasn't sent Jesus back yet is that there are a lot of people in church who aren't wearing a cross. There's a lot of people that haven't picked it up yet. There's a lot of people who haven't lost their life so that they can find it. How do you know if you would be Lot's wife? Again, she was being rescued. But a priority, a, a, an attachment, something back there had her affection. How do you know if you would be Lot's wife? I want to know that. I don't want to be Lot's wife. Well, the answer is, you can know today. If God tells you to give something up, does it make your heart skip a beat? Or do you gladly, joyfully do it? Or do you want to hold on to that unforgiveness or that possession or that career plan or that goal that you had in mind that you were going to do? If God tells you that today, right now, I want you to sell everything and move to India. There you go. There's your answer. You have attachments. I, I don't exclude myself from that. I don't want to sell everything and move to India either. Just that's the way to know. 
if, if when Jesus appears, will you be wholeheartedly, solely have eyes for him? Or is your heart going to be thinking back about your stuff? Jesus, I like my house. I like my car. I like my air conditioning. I like my career. I'm not sure I'm ready to be done with all that yet. You can know. We can know. Are we willing to give it up today? Jesus said, you have to give it up. It can't own our hearts. We can own things, but they cannot own us. There's nothing I wouldn't give away at the drop of a hat when I know God wants it. If that's our honest attitude, which it isn't, we've all got things to repent for. But if that's our honest attitude, we can know that when Jesus appears, nothing will hold us back. God is waiting for us to get our priorities straight, to figure it out, to get a clue that Jesus is all we need and all we should have. Amen.